Welcome, everyone. I am Bob Wurzelbacher, the director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro-Life. Each month, we'll discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena. We'll hear a personal story from someone deeply affected by that issue. And finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. As always, we have a special guest this week. Will you please introduce yourself? My name is Erin Brewer, and I always just describe myself as a former transgender kid when we talk about these issues. So Erin, let's turn to you. Why don't we start by just hearing your story? It's kind of hard to talk about the story. It's very personal, and it's not something that I ever wanted to share publicly, but I realized that I had to when I started to hear what was happening as a result of conversion therapy bans that were happening across the United States and even the UN is introducing them. So the reason that I became involved in this is because I was actually cured. I was helped by therapy when I was a kid. So when I was between kindergarten and first grade, my brother and I were grabbed by two men and I was sexually assaulted and he wasn't. And as the sexual assault was happening, I remember just having this incredible fear and hatred for what was happening. And immediately after, I decided I was a boy because my brother wasn't hurt and I was. And it wasn't like I consciously decided it. It was just this primal protective mechanism that kicked in. And from that moment on, I dressed like a boy. I started telling people that my name was Timothy. I wanted to go into the boys' bathrooms. And I think that my parents were concerned about the, the behavior change. They knew about the sexual assault, but they hadn't gotten me any specific help for it. And when I started first grade... My, my first grade teacher was incredibly concerned about me because I'd become very aggressive. I was insisting that I wanted to play sports with the boys. I was actually aggressive with both the kids and the adults being very disrespectful. Basically, I think I was trying to be as much of a boy as I could be. So I was like taking sort of all the stereotypes of what it meant to be a boy and amplifying them. I didn't want to bathe. I cut my hair. I actually cut my hair myself. And I insisted on wearing my brother's clothes. I didn't want anything to do with wearing girls' clothes. My teacher was really concerned because she knew the previous year I was a delightful little kindergartner, kind of quirky, but I didn't have any of these issues. So she requested the school psychologist to come and talk to me. And the school psychologist said, yes, Erin wants to be a boy. And thank goodness she didn't affirm me because if I had been a kid these days, my teacher would have affirmed me and told me that I was indeed a boy and that I was born in the wrong body and all that self-hatred and shame that I had was normal. And instead, my school psychologist came up with some ideas to help my parents and my teachers resolve those feelings that I had. And what I want to really say is important is that when I talked to the school psychologist, I never mentioned the sexual assault because I was so shamed. I felt disgusting. I felt dirty. I felt like it was my fault that it happened. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to tell anybody about it. So when I talked to the school psychologist, she didn't know what had sort of caused it. She just knew that I had these feelings. And I think that's what is so important is that kids don't come right out and talk about the reason for their gender dysphoria. A lot of times like me, they they cover it up and they hide it because they're so embarrassed and they're so ashamed and they don't really understand what happened because five or six years old, you're still just a little kid. 
so you're sexually abused at five or six years old, coming out of kindergarten, going in the first grade, some of that time. And what, what year was this that the counselor was still fortunately not being influenced by what's happening in our culture today that you were able to get the help you actually needed? That's actually a really good question. And it turns out it was 1972. It's interesting because I don't know if you've heard of Ken Zucker, but he's sort of one of the, the most prominent gender clinicians. He's done a lot of research on gender dysphoria, and he didn't start his practice until 1974. And so there really wasn't any kind of a a plan of action from my school psychologist other than just common sense, I think. And thankfully, she wasn't guided by any recommendations to affirm the, the gender dysphoria, to affirm the identity that I assumed, because if she had, she would have basically been even encouraging me to bury those feelings that I had about my sexual assault even deeper and assume this fake identity that I felt safe with. Right. Let's talk more about your story. So she did not affirm the gender dysphoria. She did not affirm that you were a boy. So how long did this take to uncover that this sexual assault had a lot to do with your gender confusion? And what was that whole process? And at what age, perhaps, did you start to realize that this is what's happening and I'm not really a boy after all and understand why your emotions were where they were? I think I was actually pretty typical of kids who have a trans identity or gender dysphoria. The school psychologist had come up with some simple recommendations, not to affirm, but to expose me to strong women, to try and encourage me to be around other girls, because I didn't want to be around other girls. And it took a long time. I actually developed, I had girlfriends when I was probably in fourth grade. I started having intimate relationships with other girls. And I think I did that because there's a need for kids to have companionship. And I didn't want to be one of the girls. I also needed that connection. And so I sort of identified as a boy and I was going to have a girlfriend. And so the first girlfriend I had, we, we kissed and we, you know, petted and we cuddled. And then as I got older, I had another girlfriend that I got more sexually involved with. And that was still me presenting as a boy. And in my mind, I was going to tell the world I was a boy, even if nobody really accepted it. It was sort of my way of insisting that I was a boy. And when I hit sixth grade, I hit puberty. I started to change physically. And at the same time, my mom also got me into therapy because I was doing a lot of self-harming behaviors. I actually used to bang my arms into walls and hit my head on desks. And sometimes when I was brushing my hair, I'd just start whacking my head with the brush until I'd bleed because I had so much anger and self-hatred. And so she got me into a therapist. And that's when we uncovered the connection between the sexual assault and the trans identity and the self-hatred that I had. So it took a long time for anybody to really understand. I think before that, people just figured I'd outgrow it or that I was a tomboy or that it was some phase that I was going through. And in some ways, they were right. But in other ways, I really needed help. Since your parents knew about the sexual assault, it seems kind of surprising to me that you wouldn't put those two together much more quickly. But so this is years. So you said they didn't affirm you right away. And yet for years, you're still struggling with this and you're we're not putting all the pieces together. So what were they saying to you when you're six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 years old? Part of it is, is that my mom had a significant mental health issue. And she was struggling, I think, just to get through the day. She was hospitalized a couple of times for depression and and suicide attempts. And so I think that 
I was a situation where I didn't have anybody at home who was really keeping an eye on me. And my stepdad actually, I think, really enjoyed having me sort of as his son, even though he knew I was his daughter. But I think he really enjoyed having me present as his son. He took me target shooting and fishing. And I think that was because my mom was so sick. She wasn't really emotionally available. And my stepdad needed somebody. And so just it worked out in the family to have me presenting like this. I don't remember ever doing anything sort of typically girl with anybody in my family. And I think it was because they all accepted that I, I was rejecting that femininity. And it's interesting because another aspect of this is that my mother actually assumed that much of my hatred for myself as being female was my father's fault, my biological father's fault, because my biological father was out of the picture. And so I think she just sort of assumed that this was a response to, be, to me being rejected by my biological father. And so I think that one of the things that I've noticed in these stories when I talk to other detransitioners, they're complicated stories. They're not these cut and dry stories. There's a lot going on. And that's true with the trans kids that we see today. Instead of just accepting the idea that somebody could be born in the wrong body, it's really important that we dive deeper and figure out what the family dynamics are, what are possible things that happen to these kids that cause these identities to develop, and how can you support these kids without pushing them further into those coping mechanisms that are already causing them to be dysfunctional. Okay, so the medical community, as you know, right, it's, it's heading in the direction already there of telling people, advising people at the first articulation of gender dysphoria, even at three and four years old, rather than discussing possible environmental causes, beginning with even the possibility that it, this could be temporary, it jumps right to full acceptance, biological intervention as soon as the age is appropriate for that, if there's ever an appropriate age for that. And I think often uses the, the excuse, if you will, that if you don't do this, they will kill themselves. If you don't do this, this child becomes suicidal. What are your thoughts on what the medical community is doing? Why, why do you think they're going that way? And why should we not go that way? What is your response to people who say, we need to just get over our fear of these gender rules and help accept these children? These are all really complicated questions, but they're important. I've really been doing research because I wanted to figure this out. What is going on with these kids? And first of all, almost all of these kids, if you talk to some therapists, it's, it's up to 100% of these kids have other issues going on. So there's depression, there's anxiety, there's autism. In my case, there's a sexual assault. I know a lot of other people who have transitioned who have these other issues that are underpinning the gender dysphoria or the trans identity. And so it's not surprising that these kids are threatening suicide and are looking like kids that are vulnerable to suicide because they have this whole slew of issues going on. But it's very important to also note that transitioning them has not shown to make any impact on their suicidality. And in fact, in England, where they started to research this more, they've shown that kids who are transitioned actually have higher rates of suicidal thinking and higher rates of self-harm. And I think it makes sense because what's happening when you transition a kid is that rather than digging down and finding out what is that inner hurt that's troubling the child, you're suggesting that it's normal and natural for them to bury that, for them to have that hatred of their body, to think that they're inherently flawed, and to basically assume a different identity to get away from those issues that they're trying to run away from. So it's not surprising that we have these issues 
around suicidality, but I want to caution people that I think that this is emotional blackmail, that parents are being told that their kids will kill themselves if they're not accepted as transgender. And there's no evidence to support that. In fact, quite the opposite is likely to be true, that these are kids who are going to end up having more emotional issues if they are encouraged to transition. Not to mention the physical issues that come with medical transitioning, which are tremendous. So I think that suicide is used as a threat. In fact, there was even a therapist named Dr. Wallace Wong who gave a presentation about gender identity issues. And he he recommended that children threaten suicide in order to get what they want. If you go into Tumblr groups and Facebook groups for this, kids are being coached on how to talk about this because it's almost like a badge of honor to get the puberty blockers or the cross-sex hormones. There are a lot of things that are complicating this discussion. These are kids that definitely need help. They definitely need compassion. They need someone to help walk with them through these issues. But transitioning them is not the answer. There's probably many, but one of the common arguments I think I've heard at least against studies that talk about people who have gone through some biological intervention, whether it's surgery or hormones, and then they regret it. They will say that, well, that that regret is based primarily on a lack of acceptance in society. It's not the fault of the surgery. It's that they're not accepted for their change. What is your response to that argument? Actually, there is a study that was done in Sweden that really proves that to be wrong. Sweden is one of the most accepting countries in the world for transgender people. And in Sweden, they did a study where they looked at people who had medically transitioned, and they found that people who medically transitioned actually had a 20 times higher suicide rate than those who hadn't medically transitioned. And this is Sweden, where people are very accepting of LGBT identities. And so I think that that's a really absurd argument. And based on the experience I have with others who have medically transitioned and decided not to, it's not true either. And a lot of them detransition because they realize they're damaging their bodies. They realize that they've caused irreversible harm to themselves and that they were lied to. And so to suggest that it's not because they're supported is is really absurd, especially when you look at other demographics that have historically been marginalized or oppressed. They don't have anywhere near the rates of unhappiness or suicidality or depression that people who medically transition do. I am very compassionate to, to these people, and I feel as a society, we need to be very loving when I look at all the different research, it's very clear to me that if you want to support someone, medically transitioning them is the last thing you want to do if you care about their health and well-being. So Aaron, you talked about Dr. Zucker who started his research, you said in the 70s, maybe around 74 or something like that. Tell me a little bit about that research and, and what the medical community seems to think about it today. Ken Zucker started his research and he developed what's called a watchful waiting protocol to deal with these kids. So rather than assume that they're born in the wrong body or assume that this gender dysphoria is permanent, his whole approach was just to sort of support the kids, to watch and wait, and to realize that there are going to be kids who are gender nonconforming. And that doesn't mean that they're transgender. It means that they're just not adhering to strict gender stereotypes. So for most of his career, this, this was his approach, just to provide counseling and support to the parents and the children. And it's interesting because this approach is very effective. As it turns out, somewhere between 70 to 98% of kids who have a trans identity will have that identity resolved during puberty. 
some people talk about puberty as actually the cure for trans identity in these kids because the hormones kick in and their body starts to change and there's no way that they can deny biological reality anymore. And so his research shows that if you medically transition kids, you're treating the tiny, tiny minority of kids who are going to end up continuing to have that trans identity into adulthood and knowing that the vast majority of them end up not having that identity. It's really unfortunate because as a result of this, what I think is a, a very good approach, transgender activists attacked his clinic and him personally and said that he was transphobic. And his clinic was actually shut down for a while. Ken Zucker actually filed a lawsuit and won because it turns out that the claims that were being made were unfounded. And so it's it's really scary to me that someone who wrote the psychological guidelines for dealing with gender dysphoria, he worked with WPATH, which is a very pro-trans organization to write their recommendations. And yet even he was targeted for not accepting the idea that these kids are born in the wrong body and that we should affirm every single kid who claims to be transgender. So we're aware of Dr. Zucker and perhaps others. I think I've heard about others also who have had similar types of treatment programs where you, instead of accepting, particularly at a young age for a child, a gender dysphoria situation as let's just accept them for that they are this opposite gender. Let us instead work with them with counseling and with changing the environment and see if we can help them to accept the biological gender that they are. How is it that the world has turned against that approach as harmful when there appears to be a lot of evidence saying that this is the best way to help the vast majority of children who express gender dysphoria? I wish I had all the answers, but I have a couple of theories. The first one is that big pharmaceutical companies are making a ton of money on this that what happens with these kids if they're put on puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones, even if they decide to detransition and accept their biological body, they're going to be having to take hormones for the rest of their lives because these treatments end up killing their gonads. They're no longer able to make the hormones that their body is supposed to make. And so they become lifelong customers of these pharmaceutical companies, whether they continue as transgender or whether they desist as transgender. So that's huge. They're also incredibly expensive. A lot of people don't realize that they're starting kids as young as eight years old on cross-sex hormones. So if you start a kid on cross-sex hormones at eight years old, assuming that they take them until they're what, 40 or 50? That's a tremendous profit for these companies. And the doctors who are supporting these interventions often are getting kickbacks from these pharmaceutical companies. There's also someone named Jennifer Pritzker, who is a multi-millionaire, maybe billionaire, who is funding a lot of these clinics. So Jennifer Pritzker used to be a male and transitioned and is using his family fortune to sort of give seed money to a lot of these clinics. And so I think that's part of it is that these clinics see an opportunity to start a gender clinic and somebody's going to give them a bunch of money. And so they jump on it. There's also part of this that is trying to erode the concept of child as being unable to give consent. And I think that this is 
part of a movement to sexualize kids. Because if you suggest that a child as young as eight years old is old enough to give consent to medical treatment, then it's not going to be long before people are suggesting, well, if they're old enough to know what kind of medical care they want, then they maybe are old enough to have sexual consent as well. And I really feel like there are some very evil forces that are pushing to accept the sexualization of children. And if you look at what's going on in the schools, we have children now in in kindergarten who are being taught that boys can have vaginas and girls can have penises. And this is something that's now talked about in elementary school just regularly. And so we're already having this sort of idea that it's normal for kids to talk about these body parts in a very casual way. And then we have transgender kids. So kids as young as kindergarten who claim to be transgender are being allowed to go into the opposite sex bathroom and locker rooms and often without parents even knowing it. It's an attempt, I think, to break down these boundaries between adults and kids and to break down boundaries, personal boundaries that kids have about their bodies and their sexuality. No matter what it is, I feel like there's evil here because it's, it's harming kids in a way that is really kind of inconceivable to a lot of people. So if you're a parent and you have a child, whether it's a young child or a teenager, they're expressing some transgender issues, some gender dysphoria, is it even possible today to get help on the real root of it rather than having to accept where most of the medical community is going, which is to simply accept this as a done fact that they are the opposite gender? One of the reasons that I got involved in speaking out about my childhood experience was because of these therapy bans that are happening in states. So there are states across the country, even here in Utah, where therapists are required to affirm a child's transgender identity. And so in a case like that, there really isn't any therapist that I would recommend a person take their child to because the therapist is going to affirm that child's gender dysphoria, which is unconscionable. I can't figure out how we got to the point where our governments are legislating the kind of treatment that these kids can get. And so if you live in a state that has one of these bans, I absolutely would not suggest that you take your child to a therapist because I've talked to parents who have taken kids to therapists without having any idea that these therapy bans are in place. And they take their child to therapy hoping to get help. And instead, the therapist actually pushes the child towards medical transitioning. So if you're a parent concerned about your kid, first of all, I would suggest don't make a big deal out of it initially. Because a lot of kids have these feelings of not being gender conforming. You know, maybe there's a boy who likes to cook or a girl who likes to hunt. And these are actually things that we used to accept in kids that that they might not be rigidly adhering to gender stereotypes. But now we say, oh my gosh, my kid might be transgender. So if a kid comes home and says they're transgender, I wouldn't freak out and I wouldn't affirm and I wouldn't take them to a therapist. I would try to help understand those feelings. And I would also, if you have a clergy or a pastor that you can take them to, that that's somewhere you can go for help. In addition, there's something that's actually coming out of all this, which is life coaching. So life coaches tend not to be regulated the way therapists are. And there are a growing number of life coaches who are working with these kids, who are helping them to sort of identify why it is that they feel like they were born in the wrong body. Where are these feelings coming from? And as you may or may not know, there's actually a phenomenon called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is hitting girls at an alarming rate. This is just an epidemic of girls who are assuming transgender identity. 
And they're finding out that it's a social contagion, much like anorexia or the multiple personality disorders that were big in the 80s. The kids are talking to each other and talking each other into being trans almost. I've talked to a lot of parents who've had experience with these kids. And what they've done is they've decided to homeschool their kids for a couple of years to get them away from their peer group or even to move to a different part of the country where they're not going to be affirmed. And some people think this is pretty radical, but when you think about the idea of your daughter having her breasts amputated or getting treatments that are gonna render her infertile, I don't think it is radical to suggest that you could homeschool your child for a couple of years to get them through this difficult time. So you have some websites, I think, that you would like to show the public. The first one, I think, is the Compassion Coalition. And that's an organization that I co-founded with some other people who are concerned about the medical transitioning of kids. And we come from uh, very different perspectives. These are people who come from all different religious backgrounds, all different ideologies, but they're all concerned about what's happening with our kids. So it's a coalition that's come together to fight against legislation that would prevent therapy, and also to try and introduce legislation that would prevent medical treatments to these kids until they're 18 or even maybe 21. And this is our website. We also have a strong Facebook presence. Go to Facebook and type in the Compassion Coalition. It will likely come up and it has the same symbol. And then the other site that I have is a a YouTube site where I actually, because of my concern about this issue, I started making videos to address what's happening. So some of the videos are sort of exposés on various gender doctors and the damage that they're doing. Some of them are interviews with people who have different experiences with transgender ideology. So I have, some of them are detransitioners, some of them are parents, some of them are therapists. And then I've also made a number of videos just talking about my experience and insights into the transgender phenomenon. So there's all different kinds of videos there. You can get there by searching Aaron Brewer. I think it might be helpful to a little bit more uh, closing out your story, right? So what happened then more like at the end, you became a teenager, started getting involved sexually with other girls your age. At what point did we, did we have the people in your life that helped you realize some of the issues that were going on and, and where are you now with those issues that plagued you early on as a child? The same-sex relationships that I had actually were well before I was a teenager and probably not particularly healthy for me to be engaging in sexual relationships at such a young age. And I really did feel pretty certain that I was a boy and that I would have girlfriends. And then probably around sixth grade, I hit puberty and I started noticing boys. I guess that's when I really started to resolve that, okay, I guess I am a girl. And then I, you know, my body started to change and I started menstruating and I was like, I didn't win, which is kind of how I felt as a child. I thought if little kids have this kind of way of thinking, they think if they just insist on it enough, they can make it happen. And so when my body started to change, it was sort of like, okay, I guess I can't make this happen. I guess I'm going to resolve to the fact that I'm a girl. And I did have therapists that helped me at that time to sort of understand that some of these stereotypes that I had of girls didn't need to define me because I was pretty quirky. If you grow up insisting that you're a boy, you develop a lot of behaviors and interests that are not typical of other girls. And I did struggle to fit in. And they really helped me to understand that it's that it was okay for me to be interested in science fiction and that it was okay for me to be more of a rough and tumble girl. 
And so those, those kind of messages really helped. And I would say that more than the therapists, that my teachers actually just helped me. I had some phenomenal teachers that really took me under their wing, really just helped me to see where my strengths were. The other thing is in seventh grade, I developed a very close relationship with another girl, and it wasn't a gr- as a girlfriend. So she was kind of another quirky girl. And the two of us ended up just being really close friends together and being silly and wrestling and doing things that typically girls don't do. But because we were doing them together, it sort of it felt okay and felt safe. And so I think that was that really helped me to understand that I was a girl. And I would say that I continued to have struggles with accepting myself and my body for a long time. I struggled with some eating disorders when I was in high school, still had a lot of self-hatred until I got pregnant and I ended up having a baby. And when she was put in my arms, she was born and put in my arms and I looked down at her and it was really the first time that I was like, this body is amazing. <laughs> I, I don't even know how to explain it. But up until that point, I'd always been so angry with my body. And I'd always felt like it had betrayed me. But when they put my daughter in my arms and I looked at her, I was like, wow, I did this. This is pretty good. <laughs> and I just felt, I fell so in love with her. I just, I can't even explain it. Watching her grow up really was helpful for me because I got to watch her and just see how wonderful it is to be a little girl. Just having that experience was just a tremendous thing for me. And it allowed me to find some love for myself that I hadn't had before. And I know that that's not going to be the solution for everybody, but it does concern me that a lot of these treatments cause people to become infertile. And for me, having kids, I ended up having two more after her. I never thought I wanted kids. When I was in high school, I actually asked a doctor if he would sterilize me because I never wanted kids. And so it just shows how much people can change. And, you know, after I had the first one, I was like, I kind of like this. I kind of like being a mom. I kind of like having kids. And I had two more. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I'd been medically transitioned. So it's not something that you can go back and reclaim once you. And I think that's actually at a really fundamental level, what has pushed me the most is that when I think about what my life would have been like without my children, it just breaks my heart. I love them. Tell me if I'm being unfair in in a characterization here, but it seems to me that often if we can even use it like the LGBTQ movement, I would certainly argue that these societal gender stereotypes shouldn't be, you shouldn't say like a boys can only do this or girls can only do this. They would certainly argue against anything like that. But at the same time, if someone who is biologically female is in part struggling with the fact that they are doing boyish things, rather than saying you can be a girl and still like some of these things that society says is more associated with a boy, they'll use that very same thing that they're against and say, yeah, because you are a boy. Whereas, at least in your case, and you're not saying that this would happen with everybody, but you, but you have said that puberty and going through that process can oftentimes be very helpful in their acceptance process of who they really are. And blocking that and stopping that is actually not, for most, going to be a helpful thing. I think you really hit on something that's very important, and that is the idea of gender stereotypes. And I don't know if you've seen this, but some of the transgender activists actually use this gender spectrum. And on one end, they have G.I. Joe, and on the other end, they have Barbie. 
And they tell kids, if you're over here by Barbie, you're a girl. And if you're over here by Ken, you're a boy. And it has nothing to do with your chromosomes or your biology. It has to do with whether or not you act more like Barbie or more like G.I. Joe. And I think that's really offensive. One of the things that really bothers me is, is people say, well, do you identify as a woman now? I don't really know what I identify as. I know I'm a woman. I still am probably not a stereotypical woman by any means, but I know that I'm a woman. And if we start defining what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman by these very regressive stereotypes, it's like we're, we're losing the beauty of having men who are more sensitive and like to cook and girls who maybe want to go work on the truck. Instead, we're going to tell you that if you if you have these certain types of behaviors, it means you're a boy regardless of your biology. And if you have these certain behaviors, you're a girl regardless of your biology, which I thought is exactly what we were trying to fight against all these years. <laughs> I remember in the 70s, the big push was to tell girls you can do all these different things and to tell boys that if they want to be a stay-at-home parent, that's fine. And it's like, rather than embracing that, now we're pushing these very absurd and kind of offensive stereotypes. And one of the things that some of the people are really upset about, so they now have drag queen story hours at some libraries, and they're comparing it to blackface because they're putting on woman face is how people say it. Lynn Meager has a lot to say about this. But the idea is that they're appropriating what it means to be a woman and trying to define it. And then in a lot of ways, they're being really quite offensive to women who are saying, hey, this is not how we define ourselves. Our definition is not based on how big our bra size is or whether or not we wear makeup. We're women because we're biologically women and we get to define what it means to be a woman. The whole idea that we're, we're supposed to be and supposedly have been fighting against, certainly those things are very, are very real. And unfortunately, they're coming back in a very damaging way, right? If there's these number of things that you like that we associated with boys and you're starting to question as a young girl, maybe I am a boy, to jump on that and say, because you are, how is that helping? It really concerns me that we're telling kids that their biology doesn't matter because we define ourselves based on facts and little kids really need those boundaries in order to understand life. And that's kind of what adults are supposed to do is to teach kids about life. I don't know a lot of people who sit around thinking, boy, I identify as a human being. And yet we all are human beings. And it doesn't matter whether we identify as one or not, we are human beings. And the same is true for sex. So to tell a child that it's possible to be born in the wrong body is actually really dangerous. And I think we're going to have a whole bunch of kids who are super confused because they're learning often as young as preschool that it's possible to be born in the wrong body. And these poor kids that are coming through these schools, and it's a whole generation that are being introduced to this idea. And it's adults who are supposed to really set the boundaries and say, well, you can pretend to be a cat, but it doesn't mean you're a cat just because you act like a cat. But we're telling them that if you want to be a boy or if you act like a boy, that it doesn't matter if you're biologically a girl, that you can actually be a boy. To me, it seems so obvious anyway, that if you push the idea of immediate acceptance, if you push the idea of if you're asking the question as a child, it's because you are someone who was born in the wrong gendered body. If you push that, then it becomes something that more people will do. It becomes something that more children will start the question. Before you know it, it's like an epidemic. It almost is now. One of the things that the transgender activists say is that a child has to be insistent, persistent, and consistent in order to be transgender. And I just want people to know that actually when they say those things, but a child can identify as transgender one month and within a month be on testosterone. 
this idea that there are people out there who are making sure that that somebody actually fits the profile of having gender dysphoria, that doesn't really exist. And there's even clinics where you can just walk in and say that you're transgender and get cross-sex hormones or puberty blockers for your kid without any kind of evaluation. And so it's even more insidious. There isn't anybody who is saying, hey, wait a minute, is it has this been going on for a while? Is this really gender dysphoria or is this just a kid sort of trying to figure out what's going on in life? And if you affirm from day one, how can you even expect it to not stay consistent and persistent? Especially if if you've got a kid who has been saying that they're transgender and telling their parents and they've gotten their teachers and friends to accept it, can you imagine how hard it would be for them to at some point realize that they were wrong and then come out and, and admit it when they've had doctors and parents and teachers affirming them for a while? And that's what I've heard some detransitioners talk about how they've been attacked and they've lost their peer group. They've lost their friends. And and sometimes even doctors and teachers and parents have been upset with them once they realize that they made a mistake. And so not only are we pushing kids to transition, we're not really giving them any way to escape that if they realize it was a huge mistake. If you have, say, a teenager, right, who is saying, I'm the other gender, I want you to refer to me with the other pronoun, this is my new name. And I say teenager in particular because you talk about a person who can really make your life difficult if you're not cooperating in some way, right? Do you have advice for a parent on how is the, what's the best way to handle that? Not having been in that situation, I just want to caveat that this is just my impression. But when I talk to parents, and I've talked to a lot of them, what happens is there's this negotiation process. So first they say, well, I'll use your pronouns. And the kid says, okay, okay. And then there's a little bit of peace. And then the kid comes back and says, I want you to use this other name. And the parents look at, okay, okay, I'll do that. And there's a little bit of peace. And then the kid comes back and wants, you know, to start transitioning at school or to start medical treatments. And they keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And my own personal philosophy is, is that it's a parent's job, first of all, to speak truth to their kids. So not to accept that a child could be born in the wrong body, but to also set boundaries. So I often ask parents if a kid came home and said that they really wanted to take heroin, that their friends have taken it and they think it's going to really make them feel better. Would that parent allow the child to take heroin? And most of us would say, of course not. Of course we wouldn't do that. It wouldn't even occur to us to do that. Even if the kid was incredibly difficult, even if they were putting up such a fuss that there was no peace in the house, we wouldn't think that that was a good idea. And yet with this transgender ideology, parents are often like, well, I guess I'll just go along with it so that there's peace at home. And one of the things that kids do, especially teenagers do, is they keep pushing to see where that boundary is. I would recommend to parents not to go along with any of it, not to be rude about it, not to be condescending about it, to be very loving and kind about it, but to just reiterate to the child that you love them, that they're born in the right body, that this is a difficult time for them, and that you're there for them to get through it. And the kid might throw a temper tantrum just in the same way that kid might throw a temper tantrum about not being able to go past curfew. Parents need to set these boundaries, and we've gotten really bad about doing that as a society. Parents really want to be their kid's friend and not their parent. And what's happening is that our kids are suffering for it. So I really encourage parents to be very loving, to be compassionate, to be empathetic, but to also set very clear guidelines that that you're not going to embrace this ideology. So Aaron, do you have any advice for the regular person, if you're not someone who has a child, right, or, or is transgender themselves, but they just want, if you want to be helpful with the issue, right, is there anything we can do 
to try to help turn the tide of where the medical community is going today or where psychologists are going today in order to truly help people who are transgender. I really would like to encourage people to get involved politically because until we start changing the legislation, we're not going to be able to stop what's happening. And so if you live in a state that's introducing VPAC laws, they call them Vulnerable Child Protection Act. So those are laws that are preventing healthcare providers from providing medical interventions to children until they're 18 or 21. Please call your legislators and tell them that you support that. I would encourage people to have an idea of what's going on in their schools, even if they don't have kids that are school age, to let the schools know that you're not supportive of this ideology. And I would also ask that maybe they consider making financial donations to some of these parents who are fighting these legal systems. So that someone named Jeff Younger, whose ex-wife is trying to transition his seven-year-old son. He is fighting a legal battle and he could use some financial support. There's someone named Rob Hoogland who's up in Canada and the courts have actually removed his power as a parent to stop his 14-year-old daughter from getting testosterone and he's trying to fight that. There's someone named Breton Nets who has a 10-year-old son whose ex-wife is trying to transition him, trying to get him on puberty blockers. He could use some financial help to fight these so that we don't have precedent that's going to open the gates for everybody. And to be aware that in states, there are these conversion therapy bans and people think conversion therapy sounds awful. That's like when you electrocute someone or you torture them or do something horrible to them. But what these bans actually are is they're requiring therapists to affirm these kids. And so they're using this language that sounds really scary. And most people would say, oh, of course, we don't want conversion therapy. But when they're actually get down to the language of the law, it requires therapists to affirm children. So fight against these bans. And also just to question it, how can somebody be born in the wrong body? Or have you heard how dangerous puberty blockers are? Isn't it scary that they're giving them to kids? I feel like we need to have a call to action because there are a lot of people who are sitting back and maybe they realize this is a problem, but they're not willing to do anything. And I just ask you, call your legislators, talk to your school board members, talk to other parents and fight this. Because if we don't fight this, we're going to have a whole generation of children who are permanently damaged from it. Erin, is there anything else? There's one other thing that I wanted to add, if that's okay. A lot of people suggest that there aren't that many people speaking out about this, that there aren't that many detransitioners, just like Walt and I, who are speaking out about our experience. And I want to point out that one of the reasons is, is that it's incredibly scary to do so. That as soon as I started speaking out about my experience, I started getting death threats. I started having people say that they wanted to get me kicked out of my housing to get me fired. One day, my son came home from school, and he said that some kids at the bus stop had told him that there were people in low who wanted to kill me. It's very hard to stand up to the trans activists who are being bullies. These are people who are being incredible bullies. And so there are a lot of people out there who want to tell their stories, but they are scared. They don't want to lose their job. And I've talked to a lot of therapists who want to speak out against this, but they know that they'll lose their job if they do. And so when you hear someone speaking out about their story, recognize that they're doing it at a great risk to themselves and that there are lots of other stories that you're not hearing because people are being silenced. Thank you for adding that. All right. Well, thanks everyone for talking with us today about transgender issues and gender dysphoria and how it is that while at first glance, it might seem like the best way to help someone with this issue is full acceptance. But I think today's interviews has helped us to understand that that is not the most helpful way. That is not the best way to help someone. What we really need to do is try to get behind the issues, accept the reality of our biology and help people to be at peace with that and accept that. So thank you for spending time with us today. 
Thank you so much for shedding some light on these issues. And it was really a pleasure to be able to talk about these issues with these others who also have such potent experiences with it. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our Being Pro-Life series. Head to the website to view all the links talked about in this episode at www.catholicaoc.org slash being-pro-life. Thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to being with you next time. 